Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, July 16th, and we're doing a speed round of S1 catch-ups. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's eager entrant of entertaining, easy yet earnest asset examinations, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how you doing? Dylan, I am doing great. Not only do we have a fun show planned for today, but right after this, I am heading out on a weekend vacation to Long Island, so I'm going to have a good day. How are you, Dylan? That's much deserved, Brian. You're, you're a hardworking guy, and I think anyone that follows you on Twitter knows that. Uh, I feel like you are all over the place and constantly doing stuff. I'm glad you're taking a break. Yeah, I'm not taking a break from any of that. So I'm just going to be physically somewhere else. <laughs> I guess that's a break in its own way after spending so much time at home over the last year and a half. Well, that's awesome. Happy to hear it. Uh, I am looking forward to doing a little grilling after work today. So uh, I can have a couple friends come over, do a little outside hang. Very excited for that. Love to get into you know the summer tradition of standing around the grill, hanging out. Always a good time. Um, before we get to our weekends, though, Brian, uh, we got to talk tech stocks, as we often do on Fridays. And, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about eight different businesses that we have done S1 shows on. And you know, I I don't know that we intentionally planned it this way, but we're basically in the you know the first half of July, so we have a good chance to look back over the first six months of 2021. Um, nice time to check in. We've done eight different shows on S1 teardowns, uh, which in some ways feels like a lot, in some ways doesn't feel like very many at all. Eight S1 shows slash there is one SPAC in here, but importantly, that's all just in 2021. I don't even know how many we did in 2020. That was another 20 or so. So if this catch up, uh, if you like this, please let us know. Uh, we were happy to do this for, say, the 20 we did in uh, the 20 or so that we did in 2020 as well. Yep. And so we'll be doing speed rounds, trying to get through eight as quickly as we can. And then we'll also be talking about of these eight, you know, there's there's one in particular that is quite high on my list and Brian's list. We both own it. Uh, but which ones seem like the most interesting investable ideas and kind of what we're looking for from this list going forward. Uh, Brian, the, the first business we're going to talk about is a firm. And this is one of those companies that people have probably seen online, even if they're not an investor, just as a consumer. Yeah, the company is Affirm. The ticker symbol is AFRM. Uh, we covered this in our January 15th episode. Uh, this is a company whose mission is to deliver honest financial products that improve people's lives. For me, the wow moment about this company was the, the founder slash CEO, uh, Max Levchin. If you've heard that name before, it's because he founded another financial company you may have heard of, PayPal. So this company is squarely focused or was initially squarely focused on the buy now, pay later market. If you have a product out there that costs several hundreds or seven thousand dollars, a firm can help you take that product break it down into bite-sized uh, manageable chunks, uh, remove uh, paying uh, uh, interest or getting worried about uh, going going overages. And that really has caught fire. This company had now has 5.4 million active uh, customers. Those customers are doing about 2.3 transactions uh, each. That figure was up a little bit slightly over a year. And this product is now accepted at thousands of merchants, including Peloton, Walmart, Shopify, Eddie Bauer, Purple, Kate Spade, uh, etc. The company earns revenue in a couple different ways. Uh, first, they earn revenue whenever they earn a fee whenever a transaction is completed. Uh, second, they earn uh, fees whenever they, the loans that they make are sold uh, to their partners. And they also have some other businesses that are, that are emerging there. 
The exciting thing about this business is that only 1% of transactions that take place globally are using uh, digitally are doing using buy now pay later. That's proven to be an extremely important feature that is really catching on. So in theory, this company has a long way to grow. Yeah, and, and I think one of the main uh, customers or, or one of the main partners that a firm has is really illustrative of how this is helpful for consumers, and that's Peloton. That was a, a very large revenue base for them uh, when they debuted. You can see the use case fairly simple, um, particularly if financing is very cheap or totally free for that option to pay later. Um, there's a lot to like for this business, even in just describing it, you can imagine. Digital tailwinds, more e-commerce activity, all of those things bode well for this business. On top of that, Brian, you have a founder-led company, uh, and in fact, a founder with a pretty awesome tech background and a really good pedigree. So it's easy to get excited about that. Um, the numbers when it comes to what they are shipping around in terms of gross merchandise volume are absolutely impressive, up 83% year over year to $2.3 billion. They've got merchants flocking to the the platform uh, almost doubling, um, and it's a very high-growth business, as you might expect, up just under 70%. A lot to like here. It seems like a pretty mission-driven company, too, uh, which we always like to see as well. This company checked a ton of boxes, and you just listed many of the things that I think both of us found really attractive about this business, to say nothing of the belief that if you believe that buy now, pay later uh, is going to grow, 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 this company should be a prime beneficiary of that. On the flip side, there was a couple of things that we didn't like about this company. Uh, first off, the market is extremely competitive and becoming even more so. For example, PayPal launched a buy now, pay later feature. And that is really what this company was became known for. So the question that both of us had is, how replicable is that? How unique to this company is that? Will, they, will people be really excited to do that feature with a firm? Or they just want the feature and will do it on any platform that, uh, that they want? Another thing to note is that they did have pretty high uh, dependence on one customer. Uh, so 30% of their total sales were spent on Peloton products. Now that makes a ton of sense because Peloton products cost a few thousand dollars and they really fit neatly into that buy now, pay later uh, category. But what happens if Peloton sales slow down? Would that mean, is that going to blow a hole in the revenue growth for this company? Uh, and third, the company had some pretty serious customer concentration. Whenever they made that loan, they had one bank partner, Cross River Bank, that bought the majority of the loan or a lion's share of the loan. Um, so that is going to be something for investors to watch. As for the stock itself, this company exploded on the, the first day of trading, trades at a very high valuation, and investors have not won by buying this thing uh, very early. So if you bought in in the secondary market, the stock is currently down about 41% from its initial trading price, even though it reported really good numbers with its first report. A lot of that is just due to valuation. Even today, this stock trades at 19 times sales. So lots to like here, also some question marks. Yeah, I think the, the big question mark for me with this one is how it plays out long-term being a feature on a website that lends itself into a business rather than something that is part of an ecosystem like you might see from a PayPal, from a Square. Um, it, is, it is really hard to compete when you have people that have really built out user bases and ecosystems. That's always been kind of my hesitation with this business. Um, and another company that you know had a lot of activity pulled forward with what we saw uh, with the pandemic and, and the switch to digital. I think it's going to probably wreak havoc on some of their year-over-year -year growth rates for a little while. Something to keep Definitely. an eye on. Something to watch for sure. Um, the second business we're going to talk about is one that is near and dear to our hearts. Um, and our, our, you know, our money is where our mouth is on this one, Brian. We both own this stock. And that is 
Olo. Uh, the, the ticker here is O-L-O, uh, short for online ordering. That's that's kind of where the, the company squarely sits. Um, their mission is to help restaurant customers thrive by best meeting the needs of on-demand consumers. And I think the easiest way to think about this business is they put restaurants in the position to own more of the relationship with their customers digital, digitally. So instead of being so reliant on the likes of Grubhub, Uber Eats, uh, DoorDash, etc., cetera, um, they are more in charge of their digital presence. And they have, uh, basically it's a SaaS company that has all of these on-demand restaurant commerce uh, options for restaurants. Um, what we liked about this, this Brian, pretty clear industry tailwinds here. We have seen an absolute explosion in um, digital restaurant activity. A lot of that has been thanks to companies like Uber, uh, making it easier for food to get delivered during the pandemic. But I would say what I what I also like is this seems like a much more restaurant-friendly way to tackle that issue. We've seen a lot of headlines about how a lot of these meal delivery companies um, kind of have a frenemy relationship with, with the restaurants uh, that they serve, which I don't think is particularly sustainable long-term. Um, I think more and more we're going to see businesses try to take charge of their digital presence, and this is a company that helps capitalize on that. The eye-popping number for me when we looked at this business, triple-digit revenue growth at the time that they went public. It was on a small base. Even now, they only have uh, just under $120 million in trailing 12-month revenue. Uh, but at a $5 billion valuation, it's a little bit easier to get excited about that. Um, and the dollar-based net revenue retention for this, this company, also super impressive, 120%. A lot of strong key business metric growth. Uh, active locations were up 40% year over year, and particularly strong margins for this business, 82%. Uh, that leaves a lot of money left over for reinvestment in the business long-term, Brian. And that is a big reason why when this company came public, it was already profitable, which is something that you can't say about many businesses. And uh, personally, the thing that blew me away about Olo was just how little it had to spend on sales and marketing to drive all of that growth. As a reminder, Olo's strategy is to really go after the big franchise companies like, say, an Applebee's and sell it at the corporate level. If they can sell it at the corporate level, it then gets pushed out to all of the company's franchise partners essentially at once. That's going to make the business a little bit lumpy, but that means that the company doesn't have to spend a lot, and then it can really extend its reach. And that's a big reason why the growth was uh, was so high. There were a few things that we didn't like that it was definitely worth uh, keeping an, an eye on. First off was just the natural co-opetition of the meal delivery companies, right? They're, they're sort of competing with the DoorDashes and Uber Eats of the world, and yet they're also depending on them for it to actually fulfill the de delivery orders themselves. Remember, this is just a, a software company that plugs in to all those uh, different uh, different orders. The other thing that we didn't know was, yes, their 2020 numbers were fantastic, as many software companies were, but was that going to be sustainable? Uh, so far, their first earnings report in the first quarter 2021, as you said, triple digit growth. So it was very clear that the answer there was yes. However, as the world starts to open up, I think it's fair to say that this company's growth is going to slow. Uh, how much is it going to slow? Uh, we don't yet know, but uh, that is something uh, to watch. As for the stock itself, currently trading at a $5 billion valuation or about 43 times sales. So lots to like, but man, is it pricey. Yep. And uh, I have decided that the the valuation is worth it and bought in small positions twice. Brian, uh, you're a shareholder of this company as well, right? I am. Yeah. I think there's enough to like about the business. And again, I was really impressed with the uh, the profitability. So this is a company that I do own. 
Um, this next business we're going to talk about, Global E, Brian, uh, operates in a space uh, where I own some companies. However, uh, I don't specifically own a business in the segment that they're in. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about who they are and what they do? Sure. Global E, the ticker is G-B-L-E. This company's mission is to make global e-commerce border agnostic. So this is an online e-commerce platform that helps retailers and anybody merchants to do business internationally. So you can use Global E platform uh, to uh, customize your website in the country that you want to sell in. It helps you accept hundreds of local payment uh, options. It enables you to uh, do customer support in them. It helps you do evil, uh, easy returns. It helps with uh shipping. Uh, so that is a market that is definitely in growth mode and Global E is approaching it from a, a unique angle. This company did report earnings since it first came public and the numbers were fantastic. Uh, gross, mer- gross merchandising volume grew 133% to $267 million. Revenue grew 134% to $46 million. Gross margin here expanded by 390 basis points to 33%. Uh, percent. They did produce a small net loss, but that was just $2 million. The big takeaway, though, was after this company came public, it signed an exclusive service and partnership agreement with Shopify to be essentially the platform provider of providing this service to Shopify. That is a major feather in this company's cap. Yeah, I mean, that's that's about as good as it gets when it comes to social proof, uh, right? We've seen how wildly successful uh, Shopify has been. I am a proud shareholder, as are you, Brian. Um, and, and really, I think probably the company that people look to uh, in the e-commerce space that isn't named Amazon, right? Like when it, when, it, when it comes to figuring out how to master that zone, they've done an incredible job. It's always uh, helpful to see that a smaller company uh, is getting partnered up with them. It certainly is. So there was a ton that we liked about this company. The the, t- the total adjustable market was enormous. The growth was huge. The company's net dollar and your revenue retention rate was over 140%. Uh, it was profitable, although it dipped into unprofitable in the most recent quarter. The stock-based compensation was low, and the, it was growing very fast. On the flip side, there were a few things that we said were worth watching. Uh, First off, the company's number one customer was 18% of revenue. That was down year over year, but that's still some serious customer concentration. The other concentration risk is on the supply side. So this company uh, uh, is reliant on DHL, the global shipping company, for 59% of its transactions. So if that relationship went sour for any reason, this company would be scrambling. On the flip side, DHL is a 5% shareholder of Globally. So those two companies do have an economic incentive to continue working together, but it is something to worth noting. The other thing was the gross margin here was pretty low. As I said, gross margin rose almost 400 basis points, and yet was just 33%. That's not very high and is far lower than Shopify. But overall, lots to like about this business. Lots to like, and shareholders have probably been pretty happy since the company's gone public. I think it's up over 100% in the short amount of time um, that it's been publicly traded. Uh, So, you know, it's done pretty darn well. Um, As you might imagine, with that, it is priced for huge growth. Uh, It's about an $8 billion business these days, uh, trading just under 60 times sales. So, rich valuation here, Brian. Um, But I think that there's a lot to like about the space that it's in, um, the margin profile, and what really, the the huge stamp of approval for me is the net dollar retention rate number with this company. I mean, um, we always look for that aha moment when we're looking at a company financials to show, okay, customers really like this thing. That is that moment for me with this business. 
Yes, absolutely. That number kind of blew us away. So you are right. This company is very press, uh, very expensive at 59 times sales and 160 times uh, gross profit. Uh, but as a reminder, triple digit revenue growth plus the exclusive agreement with Shopify. I understand why the stock has more than doubled since coming public. We couldn't talk 2021 uh, debuts without getting a SPAC in there, right, Brian? We had to sneak one in. Um, this third company we're going to be talking about, Berkshire Gray, is that. Um, we talked about them back in March. Uh, there is the ticker that they are now, and then there is the company that they will trade under as a SPAC. Uh, still waiting on that part of the deal, but we can at least look at the books um, and track the business. So the ticker here is RAAC. Uh, the SPAC is expected to complete or the transaction is expected to complete sometime in the third quarter of 2021. So this is a company that's focused on warehouse automation and operations. And the easy way to think about this company is they help everybody compete with Amazon. Amazon has a massive warehouse. They're, they're taking advantage of the latest and greatest robotics. It's really hard for a smaller company to compete with that because Amazon has so much Scale. But Berkshire Gray's system includes uh, robots, sensing system, gripping systems, machine vision, AI, automation, all of that put together so that smaller companies can hire Berkshire Gray and compete. And there was things that we really liked about this company, but I think the company's early customers were really what caught our eye. As a reminder, this company's major early customers include Walmart, Target, FedEx and TJX. That is a that 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 is a major plus for this company. Yeah, I always worry a little bit as I start treading into things like robotics as a service, right? Or uh, the next company we're going to talk about, UiPath. Um, as I start to get a little bit outside of my comfort zone, always looking for those moments where I can check in and say, you know, I don't know a ton about this space, but it seems like these people do. And they spend a lot of money there. So if they're a customer, it's probably a good sign. I would say Walmart, Target, FedEx, and TJX are about as good you can get for social proof for a company in this space. Especially given how early this company is. So as a reminder, this company is essentially in stealth mode for a period of years, but it did attract some pretty impressive VCs behind it, including including Coastal Ventures, uh, Steve Case, who is the co-founder of AOL, uh, Chamath, uh, so uh, SoftBank. So those are the people that are investing uh, in this company. And I really like that the company is approaching this 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 clear opportunity as a as a service business model. So they call it robotics as a service. That tells me that this company is going to be having recurring revenue as it goes deeper and deeper with these these customers. And importantly, the TAM here, the potential here is massive. The company believes that its current opportunity is $280 billion and growing. So that is a huge opportunity that this company is staring down. Yeah, and of course, you know there there are going to be some things that we didn't like, and you know this is this is an emerging company. Um, there's there's probably going to be some lumpy growth with this business. Uh, it is losing money. We'll continue to do so, though. Uh, you know, it, it does seem. I think management had reiterated that um, they are basically funded until they're hitting profitability at some point later uh, in their roadmap. I think 2024. So there's a lot. Uh, there's a good amount of runway for this business. Um, this is a big problem and one that a lot of people are spending money investing in. Uh, Amazon being uh, kind of front and center there, um, but you know, Shopify is working on uh, their own logistics. Um, there's Cognex, Cognex in this space as well. Brian, I, I kind of look at this as a pretty decent upside business, um, but the floor is also pretty low. 
this is, of all the eight stocks we're going to talk about, the one that is the most swing for the fences of any of them. I mean, if this works, 10, 20, 30, even 50 bagger returns are entirely possible. But what are the odds of that working? I don't know. We do have a little bit of social proof at this time, but we definitely don't have the financials that back up the story at all just yet. I think this next company we're going to talk about is also a high upside uh, business, um, and that's UiPath. And the ticker symbol here is P-A-T-H, Path. Um, it's a software company that's also focused on robotics in a sense, but in a different world. Um, so they're focused on robotic process automation, uh, and their mission is to unlock human creativity and ingenuity by enabling the fully automated enterprise and empowering workers through automation. Uh, basically, layman's terms, uh, they are providing automation software solutions that can be deployed by non-technical people. And so making it easier and easier for people who don't necessarily have a coding background or a technical background to automate rote, uh, repeated tasks that happen over and over again uh, and, and realize efficiency, really, for, for companies and for individuals. Um, what I liked about this business, Brian, was there's, there's no shortage of opportunity here. There is a lot to like. There's a lot, <laughs> a lot of greenfield here. Yeah, there really is. The opportunity in AI and uh, is is I think everyone understands that the opportunity there is is just huge. And one thing that we both liked about this business is a lot of third parties essentially identified UiPath as the leader. That includes uh, Gartner. And if you look at the company's net revenue retention rate, which to me is like the ultimate sign of customer appreciation, that number at the IPO was 145%. Nothing says that customers love this product than the same exact customers spending more. And wow, are they spending more on UiPath. Yeah, and it's easy to understand why when you look at what we get from the industry and, and, and folks that follow the space. Um, you, you mentioned before, like if you look at Gartner's rankings, they're the top dog in RPA. Um, but if you look at some of the other ways that they're kind of assessed, they're a best-in-class company. Um, in April 2020, uh, they were named the uh, top tech company and the number two overall in Financial Times FT1000 ranking of America's fastest growing companies. Um, they are on CNBC's 2020 Disruptor 50 list, um, ranked on number three for Forbes Cloud 100 list for the second consecutive year. Um, so people in the industry seem pretty excited about this business. Um, there's a lot here, Brian. Uh, we, we actually have an earnings report from this business, which I would say, looking backwards, very strong, looking forwards, created some uncertainty for, for the business um, and for investors just trying to make sense of uh, you know how management um, is going to be talking about things, looking forward and that kind of stuff. Um, revenue came in quite strong, 65% growth ahead of expectations. In that sense, absolutely crushed the earnings report. Um, but they, they made a point to say, management, that they manage and measure success based on annualized renewal run rate, which is basically their annualized invoiced amounts uh, from term subscription licenses and maintenance obligations. And that doesn't assume any increases or reductions in those subscriptions. Um, that grew 64% this quarter. So more or less in line with the revenue that we saw. 80% of that is from expansion, which you love to see. Um, however, if you look forward, they're guiding for more impressive ARR growth, about 55% for this quarter. Um, where revenue is only supposed to come up about 31% at the midpoint of guidance. And so uh, management in their commentary continues to emphasize ARR, and they seem to be focused on that for how they are going to be um, measuring themselves, how they're going to be planning for the business. Um, investors and analysts are going to have to figure out whether that's worthwhile for them, because you're starting to see a little bit of a disconnect between those growth rates. And 
that that's okay for short periods of time. But Brian, the question is always why when that happens. It sure is. But if management is really saying, we want you to focus on this number, this is the number that we focus on. And given the dichotomy between those two, they're guiding for ARR at 55% growth, revenue is only going to grow 31%. I understand why they're emphasizing that now. The question, I have no problem with that as long as management is consistent with that over a period of quarters and years and really say, this is the number that we are are, are, are guiding for. That's something that you just have to accept if you're an investor. But I was really impressed with this company's uh, earnings report. Revenue is up 65%. A gross margin is still very strong at 70, uh, 74%. Uh, and the company is profitable on an adjusted basis. Combine that with the net revenue retention rate and the fact that this company is founder-led. There's a lot to like about this business. There is a lot to like. And I think having read through the, the conference call, I, I like the way that management is approaching guidance. My hunch is that it's going to be one of those businesses that tends to be a little bit more conservative on the guidance side and provides positive surprises rather than negative surprises because they're a little overly ambitious or overly rosy in their outlook. Um, one of those companies where I think you get a good feel for management by by reading the call and, and starting to parse through it. I didn't see a net retention rate number in there in the call. So that 145 we're talking about is from the prospectus. I'd like to see that regularly reported, but you, know, you can't have everything, Brian. Can't have everything done. <laughs> um, next company we're going to talk about is No Before, um, a a cybersecurity company, Brian, kind of, but also a little bit of like a knowledge company. Yeah, the ticker here is KNBE. We talked about this company in April. Uh, their mission is to enable employees to make smarter security decisions every day. Uh, this company was founded in 2010 by Stu Showerman, a longtime cybersecurity executive. The opportunity that he saw was that the technology, the, the answer to cybersecurity was always the same thing. It was focused on the technology. Let's make our firewall better. Let's protect our, our products better. However, Showerman realized that more often than not, this real cybersecurity risk wasn't the technology. It was employees letting bad guys into their systems by falling for phishing, phishing hacks or things like that. So Know Before is a company that is focused on training employees to make themselves better at cybersecurity. So the company does that by using modules and risk assessment tools to basically go into an organization, do a complete risk assessment. They actually do some phishing scams internally to see if their own employees uh, fall for them. And then they make suggestions saying, we recommend making these changes to make your security better. There was a lot that we liked about this company going in, including the fact that the growth was pretty good. In the most recent quarter, their revenue grew 37%. The gross margin here is outstanding at 85%. The culture here was off the charts good. I mean, Stu Showerman is one of the most beloved CEOs in tech and this company produced $21 million in free cash flow during the first quarter. So financially, this company is a powerhouse. It is. Yeah, there's there's a lot to like there. I think one thing that was kind of interesting, after we looked at this business initially with the S1 show, um, Tim Byers, one of our colleagues, made the point that like, you know, does this business deserve to be valued the way a SaaS stock would be valued? Or should this be more of a consulting company? And I, I'm still trying to figure out the answer to that question. The more time I spend with it, the more it feels like a consulting company that happens to have SaaS economics. Brian, I'm curious, have you spent any time with that? Yeah, I, I understand that that question. And for those that are curious, consulting businesses get much, much, much lower valuations than SaaS businesses. But I'm just looking at the business itself and I see high margin, 
recurring revenue, same customers spending more. So based on the financials that I see, I see way more SaaS-like qualities than I do consulting qualities. So in your opinion, Brian, it's just call it what you want. I like the numbers. <laughs> yes, call it what you want. I like the numbers. I like that. Um, the next business we're going to talk about, Squarespace. Brian, you and I actually didn't talk about this company. I talked about it with uh, with our colleague Anand because uh, I think you were on a much deserved vacation. Um, this is a late May IPO, probably a name that a lot of people are familiar with. If you listen to podcasts, you have undoubtedly heard an ad for Squarespace at some point. Um, we don't have a new set of financials to look at yet beyond what we got when we did that prospectus show. Um, but Brian, I, I think there aren't going to be a lot of surprises with what we liked about this company. Digital business, good brand recognition. Um, they provide an all-in-one platform uh, for creators to build out their digital presence, uh, transact, and also market themselves. And so they have a ton of different services that they offer uh, related to websites, domains, uh, help with social, professional email. Uh, they have commerce operations, scheduling, paywalled member, area access, uh, marketing campaigns, all that kind of stuff. Um, this is a high subscription revenue business. Um, I think about 94% of Squarespace's revenue comes from the subscription side. High gross margins, over 80%. Um, the thing that I think is kind of maybe most interesting with them is the growth rate is going to sound a little bit lower than some of the other companies we've talked about. This company has been around a little bit longer. So 28% revenue growth more recently, not quite as high growth as some of the other names. Um, one of the things I do kind of love about this business, Brian, is founder-led and it's got one of those classic founding stories of, you know, it, it was born out of a dorm room at University of Maryland, uh, which, which I always love. You know, it's, it's, it's nice to kind of have that lore, um, but it's always, more importantly, nice to see a founder at the helm. That is great to see. And just reading over some of the notes that we have in this company, uh, the gross margin here seems good. The revenue growth seems good. My exposure to the space, though, is mostly because I've been studying Wix for a long time. And I really like that Wix's business model is come to Wix.com, build a website for free, and then they convince a small number of their users to upgrade over time to their premium platform. Is that what Squarespace is doing, too? Uh, no, they're they're more of a, a premium model. So it, I mean, it's still very accessible with what they're trying to do in terms of, uh, yeah, I forget exactly what their monthly uh, charges are, but it's it's not crazy. Um, but I don't think they're as free, as freemium focused as Wix is. Gotcha. Well, they are, according to this, uh, according to what I'm looking at, uh, very profitable, and that includes spending heavily on selling general administrative, which makes sense given the fact that, like you said, I've heard Squarespace ads on podcasts for years, but clearly, given the numbers we're seeing, those are investments that are well-made and they're paying off. Yeah, I think the concern with them is you know, they, they have a lot of customers that really like them. They have like 3.6 million customers. Um, I think the upside in this space is layering in functionality beyond what the core person who like wants to host a portfolio or something like that might want to do. And that's where you see a lot more competition. So when you start getting into commerce, when you start to get into more integrated solutions, um, I worry that Shopify and big commerce already have a huge part of the more interesting parts of the market. And then within the more basic website builder, they have Wix. Um, so, so I don't know. I, I haven't really had that aha moment with Squarespace yet, but it seems like a pretty well-run business. It does. And to, to like you said, uh, I know Wix better, so that's the company that I'm more interested in. But a first glance at Squarespace looks pretty darn good. Yep. And we'll be tracking it. <laughs> 
you know, and it's, it's, it's always nice when you don't have to spend 20 minutes trying to figure out what a company does, uh, <laughs> uh, in Squarespace's case, uh, a little different with Sentinel one, the next business we're going to be talking about. This was a June show we did. Um, and in a word, Sentinel one does cybersecurity. Um, and specifically they are doing endpoint focused cybersecurity. Uh, and so I'm going to, I'm going to take directly from the company here cause they're going to do a better job explaining this than I will. Um, they said we pioneered the world's first purpose-built AI powered extended detection and response or XDR platform to make cybersecurity defense truly autonomous from the endpoint and beyond. And basically they are positioning themselves as using technology and machines to fight back against highly resourced military grade cybercrime operations. So fighting machines with machines, which Brian conceptually makes a lot of sense to me. If I get too deep in the tech, it's going to go over my head. Yeah. And the way I visualize this company is basically CrowdStrike, but smaller. And they, they are very much along that same veins. They're hyper-focused on endpoint security. They use AI and machine learning to make their platform better and better. They just don't have the size, scale, or, or growth as, 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 uh, as uh, CrowdStrike does. However, the numbers that we've seen thus far are pretty darn impressive. 124% net revenue retention rate uh, in the most recent quarter. That's very strong. It's below CrowdStrike, but it's still very strong. Revenue growth up over 100% year over year. Very strong cash position very little debt, founder-led management team that gets very high marks. So if you are into the cybersecurity, Sentinel-1 is definitely worth a look. Yeah, I, I think um, you, you mentioned CrowdStrike before, um, and, and it's impossible not to compare them um, when, when you have the two together, because they, they operate in the same space um, with endpoint protection. And if you look at, you know, we mentioned Gartner before, and I think it's a helpful check for us anytime we're looking at some of these sub-industries, uh, the magic quadrant for endpoint protection has um, UiPath, or, or sorry, Sentinel-1 up there, but they are not the leader in the space. They are a leader in the space. Um, the companies that are ahead of them are quite a bit bigger as well. And so Microsoft and CrowdStrike are, are really two of their main competitors in this industry. Um, and I would say, Brian, that those are two businesses that have a lot more resources at hand. Um, and, and even when we did the show on them, we noted that on Sentinel-1's website, they specifically call out comparisons to Microsoft and to CrowdStrike. So, you know, they're, they're trying to invite that comparison, I think, because they know they need to take it on from a marketing and a messaging standpoint. I'm sure they hear it every single time they go out there and try and sell. Well, how do you compete with CrowdStrike? Well, how do you compete with uh, Microsoft? And again, for a sense of scale here, um, CrowdStrike is about a $56 billion business. Sentinel One is an $11 billion business. And that $11 billion that it's earned, holy cow, is that off of a rich valuation. This is the company with 112 million in trailing 12 months sales. That means this stock is trading at 95 times sales. And it's not like it has the ma- a massive gross margin to go along with this. The gross margin for this company was 55%. I mean, that's good in absolute terms, but it's nowhere near the 70 or 80% that we see with other software companies. So for whatever reason, the market really likes this thing and is rewarded a massive valuation. Yeah, I think that's one of the the hardest things for me to get over with this business is just how richly valued it is. I think maybe some of it is that people look at uh, you know a business like CrowdStrike and see the opportunity in front of it, saying, "Well, like this is what Sentinel One could blossom into." Um, it feels a little rich given the margin profile uh, and the growth story. Um, what I do like about this business is incredibly high marks for leadership. And it's a founder-led business. Um, CEO gets 4.7 stars on Glassdoor, 97% approval rating. 
Um, I don't know if this is necessarily at the top of my investing list. There's a lot to like here, but it certainly seems like a good place to work in a quality business. Um, it might not just be the top one of the ones we've talked about today for me. That's fair enough. So Dylan, we just covered eight stocks in about 30 minutes. Yes, both of us are shareholders of Olo, so I think it's fair to say that we like that one the best. So I'm curious, of the other seven, which one are you most interested in researching more now? You know, um, if, if I had to kind of bucket the way that I'm looking at these companies, range of outcomes, I think Squarespace is probably one of the ones that is easiest to look at ceiling floor and say like, this is probably a bigger company in a couple years than it currently is. Um, and, and probably a market beater. Um, I don't know if it's got like five X or 10 X potential in it in the next couple years, but if that's more your speed from an investing standpoint, that's probably the company that I would be highlighting here. Um, a firm is interesting to me. I like the consumer space that they're in, uh, global E also very interesting to me. I tend to anchor to the net dollar retention rate numbers that we see from some of these businesses. Um, and when they're really impressive, that is almost a trump card. And, and one of the things that I just immediately latch to the most. And so with globally, that like that that kind of immediately gets it to the top of the list for me. What about you, Brian? I think there's lots of reasons to like uh, globally uh, and uh, Berkshire Gray. I think those bo both of those companies have huge upside. But when I take everything into account, I think the one I'm most interested uh, in continuing to following and maybe even buy shares of is No Before because again, this this the numbers out of that company are really impressive. I really like that it's um, I really like that it's already free cash flow positive, and I just like the fact that they're approaching cybersecurity from a non-technical angle. And I really think the the need for that kind of product is there. So the uh, the mistake I could be making is, is that product easy to replicate? Like, is the moat there not all that wide? Uh, that I, I don't know. But given the review here, I think I want to dive deeper into no before. Yeah. And I don't want to disparage the consulting industry, by the way. You know, I mean, like there, there have been some very good performing stocks that work more as consultants than as SaaS providers. Um, and if that's the bucket that no before happens to fall into, take a look at the stock chart from Accenture. Uh, you know, none of those shareholders are disappointed. Um, you know, the, the, the consultant style model um, is a certainly a good one. And in terms of valuation, Brian, that's probably the most reasonably priced company we talked about today. And I'll even one-up you there. Don't look beyond Accenture. Check out Globant. Check out EPUM Systems. Check out Endava. All four of those companies are tech consultants. All four of those companies have smashed the market return. So if Global, if No Before falls into that category, I welcome it. There you go. And uh, I'll, yeah, I'll put it out there. I mean, listeners, I'd love to get your sense on which of these is most interesting to you. Um, and maybe just which, which one you'd like for us to do a follow-up on uh, at some point once we have a, a couple earnings reports to look back on. So Twitter, at MF Industry Focus, sound off there. Or you can reach Brian Froldy, at Brian Froldy. Catch him there. I'm at Wiley Lewis. Brian, before we get started on our weekend, any parting thoughts? Have a great weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You can, you can tell Brian was ready for that question. Uh, <laughs> Brian, as always, such a pleasure getting to talk with you on Friday afternoon before we head into some relaxation on Saturday and Sunday. Hope you have a good one. You too, bud. See you soon. Listeners, hope you guys have a good weekend too. That's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, like I said, shoot us an email, industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. 
Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, fool on.